One day, Jesus told a story about two men. The one man was a tax collector. In that day, a tax collector was considered the most unethical, most immoral person in society. Uh, on the other hand, there was another guy there. He was a Pharisee. He was a well-respected religious leader known for being upright and moral. And in this story, like in many of the stories that Jesus told, Jesus was saying something which was completely surprising, completely unexpected to those who were listening, to those who heard him speak. What Jesus was saying really flew in the face of how most people thought about God and right living. And I believe that it today also still flies in the face of how most people think about God and right living. Here's what Jesus said. We read this in Luke chapter 18. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted." When Jesus started telling this parable, the people listening uh, would have assumed that he was telling a story about a, a good person and a bad person. And the assumption was, of course, that the good person was religious and this good person would be close to God, whereas the bad person who was immoral would be distant from God, would be far from God. But at the end of the story, here's the surprising twist, is that we come to find out that the bad guy in our story is actually closer to God than the good guy. Because the bad guy humbled himself before God and asked for mercy, and it says that he was justified by God's grace. It was a gift, right? He was justified freely by God's grace. And what Jesus is trying to do here is to challenge the way that people think about goodness and righteousness and approaching God. You see, the, the fundamental difference between the two men in this story was not, as many people would have assumed at first, it was not their morality. The fundamental difference, the thing that makes all the difference between these two men was how they approached God. The first man, the moral man, he approached God on the basis of his own performance. He pulled out his moral resume. He said, check me out. Here's all of my accomplishments. Here's who I am. Here's what I've done. The second man, though, the immoral man, he didn't even try to pull out a resume. He didn't even have one. So he just approached God solely on the basis of God's mercy and grace. And that man was justified, surprisingly enough. To be justified means to be made righteous. To be made righteous. And here's the irony of the story. The good man thought that he was righteous. The bad man, on the other hand, knew that he was not righteous. But when he humbled himself and he asked God for mercy, God in his grace made him righteous. 
That is the message of the gospel. And that's what we've been talking about here in the letter to the Galatians. We have been exploring the gospel message, what it means, and the implications of it because they're huge. It means that all people have fallen short of the glory of God. They have sinned, every single one of us. But we can be justified freely by the grace of God through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Now here's what righteousness is. Think about it in these terms. Righteousness is a validating performance record that opens doors. It's a validating performance record that opens doors. It's kind of like a resume if you think about that. If you want to go get a job, what do you do? You pull out your performance record, your vocational performance record. These are the things that I've done. These are the things I've accomplished. This is who I am. You should accept me on the basis of this. If you try to get into, say, university, you want to go to a grad program or something, you pull out your academic record. These are the things I've accomplished. This is what I've done. Here's my list. Here's who I am. It's my resume. This means, on the basis of this, that you should open the door before me, that you should accept me to this position. And what's interesting is that every religion in every culture believes that it works the same way with God. Do you know that? Every culture, every religion, they believe that it works the same way with God. That if you want to connect with God, if you want to connect to the divine, what you need to do is pull out your moral performance record and show it to him. In other words, you develop a righteousness and then you present it to God. And if it's good enough, then he accepts you. And if it's not good enough, then back to the drawing board. And that's essentially what the first man in our story did. He presented this, this moral resume to God, his validating performance record, his righteousness. He said, look at all these things that I do. Look at what I've accomplished. This is the basis for you to accept me. But what we find in the Bible is a different approach to God. Actually, we find an approach to God that is absolutely unprecedented. It is absolutely unheard of actually a spirituality that is unheard of and unprecedented and it is this it is the gospel it says this that no matter who you are your performance record your resume would never be enough it could never be enough no matter how good it is for you to be accepted by God but because God loves you a righteousness from God has now appeared. That's what Paul says in Romans, right? A righteousness from God has now appeared. In other words, there's a righteousness from God, a validating performance record that is good enough. And here's what it is. God created this for you and he will give it to you as a gift if you will humble yourself and ask for it and receive it by faith. And that's exactly what the second man in our story did. You see, the one thing which sets the Christian gospel apart from every other religion or, or belief system in the world is this message of grace. The gospel of grace is essentially this, that God became a man and he dwelt among us. And his name was Jesus and he lived a perfect life. He created a perfect performance record, a perfect resume. And not only that, but he died a sacrificial death. Why? You know what that was? It was so that he could trade resumes with you. And you know what he does? He takes the resumes and he scratches the names out on them, right? And he puts your name on his record and he puts his name on your record. 
And so on the cross of Calvary, what we see there is that Jesus took your record. He took your place in death so that you might take his place in life eternally. So that's what it means to be justified, to be made righteous, to be given a validating performance record that opens doors to fellowship with God and to eternal life. So that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus' resume with your name on it. That's what it means to be in Christ. Here in, the, here in the letter to the Galatians, Paul is writing to a group of Christians who, who even though they were Christians, they were believers, they were still trying to be justified by their own righteousness. Just like the Pharisee in this story, they believed that they had to present themselves to God. They had to present a resume to God in order for him to save them, in order for him to bless them, in order for him to receive them. And Paul writes this letter now as an urgent appeal to them for God's grace. And this is really important for us to see that the recipients of this letter were Christians. They were Christians, right? Yet they needed to be instructed about the gospel. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Because these people were still trying to justify themselves in their own righteousness even though they were already believers in Jesus. And that does speak to you and me. We have to see that, that as Christians, we still need the gospel. No matter how long you've been a Christian, you still need to be reminded of the gospel over and over. The gospel is not something you ever outgrow. It's not something you ever move on past as a Christian. You see, believing the gospel is not just how you become a Christian, but it's also how you live as a Christian. I like to put it this way. The gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. It is the A to Z of the Christian life. Here, here in the first two chapters of Galatians, Paul has been talking about how the way you become a Christian is by believing the gospel. That's the first two chapters. The gospel is how you become a Christian. It's how you become righteous in God's eyes because he justifies you by the gospel. But here's the thing that most Christians struggle with. It's the question that I think many churches have a hard time answering and maybe don't even do a good job answering. Is this, once you've put your faith in Christ, once you've been saved, once you believe the gospel, well then what, right? Well, then you just kind of try to stick it out until you die, right? I guess that's how it works. But, uh, you know, I think that's a question that many Christians ask, and, and I don't know if they get a solid answer. I think many churches actually have a hard time and a difficulty answering this question. They know that people need the gospel to get saved, but then what do you do with them after that? And that's what we're going to be talking about today, and that's what Paul addresses here in Galatians chapter 3. The long and short of it is this. The gospel is more than just the means by which you are saved, the means by which you enter the kingdom of God. It is also the means by which you walk in the kingdom of God, the means by which you grow in your relationship with Christ. We're not only justified by faith in Christ through the gospel, but we are sanctified through faith in Christ through the gospel. We don't begin in faith and then proceed to grow through our own efforts and through our own works. No, we never leave the gospel behind. The gospel is not only the ABCs, it's not only the starting point, the basics of the Christian life, it is the A to Z, it is comprehensive, it is the whole of the Christian life. And there are three basic areas that are addressed in the section we're looking at today. 
And they are these. This is how we're going to break it down. The gospel of God's grace is not only how you're saved, but it's also how you grow. It is how you serve and it is how you live. So how you grow, how you serve, and how you live. Let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 3. Paul says, Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this only. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing by faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? Paul starts out by reminding the Galatians of how they became Christians, how they came to faith in Christ. He reminds them that they became Christians by putting their faith in the gospel. They had received the Holy Spirit by putting their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ by faith. They didn't work for it. They didn't earn it. They just received it. And Paul reminds them that when he came to them, the essence of the message that he preached was Christ crucified. And I think that's interesting. You know, here at, here at Whitefields, one of the, you know, kind of catchphrases or buzzwords that we use is that we like to think of ourselves as a gospel-centered church. That's something that we strive for. That's part of our identity. We are a gospel-centered church. Now, what does that mean? He, here's part of what it means. Look at how Paul talks about how he preached the gospel. He says, I preached Christ and him crucified. I portrayed before you Christ crucified. I held him up and said, look at him on the cross. Look upon him. That was the essence of his preaching. The essence of his preaching was not tips and strategies about how to live, right? It wasn't tips and strategies about how to have your best life now. His preaching was focused on what Jesus did for us on the cross. That was it. That's what he wanted it to be all about. In other words, the, the focus of his preaching was not on what you must do for God. It was what God has done for you in Christ. That is what gospel-centered preaching is all about. Not tips and strategies to improve your quality of life. In his first letter to the Galatians, Paul writes them and he tells them that when I came to you, I determined in my mind that I would preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. Now, you know what's interesting about that? Is that Paul, when he went to Corinth, he spent a year and a half in Corinth. A year and a half, right? And he preached nothing but Christ and him crucified. He preached nothing but the gospel message. Not, he said, I didn't want to preach the wisdom of men. I wanted to preach the gospel to you. But he did it for a year and a half. Now, now, some of you might wonder, well, how did he do that? That must have been pretty boring, right? You go to church and you hear the same thing every week. What do you do? You know, you know, I'd like to hear maybe some tips and strategies. Come on, give me something to work with here. And, and I'm sure, the, I'm sorry, I'm sure though it was not boring. And let me tell you why. When you look at Paul's epistles, what you find is that in every single one of them, the focus is Christ and him crucified. And what he does is that he preaches the gospel in such a way as to apply it to every area of your life. So I'm sure that that was not a boring year and a half. It was a year and a half of Paul explaining how the gospel applies to every area of your life. You know, it's common in Christian circles, I think, to assume that the gospel is something for non-Christians, right? But that once you put your faith in Jesus, you don't need to hear it anymore. You don't need to study it. You don't need to seek to understand it anymore because you got it, right? And now you can move on to the advanced material, whatever that is, right? 
But what Paul is saying here is that this is the advanced material. Sure, there are other things to learn from the Bible, but this is advanced as it gets. Christians need the gospel just as much as non-Christians do because the gospel is not just the means by which you're saved, it's also the means by which you grow. The gospel is not just a list of things that you have to assent to in your mind, right? That you have to agree to this list of things if you want to call yourself a Christian. It's more than that. Paul says that the gospel is the power of God, right? It is a catalyst, it is a dynamic which brings about transformation in our hearts. It transforms our minds and then that overflows into our actions. Oftentimes the problem is that we get this backwards. Instead of, instead of trying to minister to the heart, we try to change the behaviors. So, so here's what Paul says, that we need to be reminded of the gospel all the time. That's why Jesus instituted this practice of community. He said, do it often in remembrance of me until I return. Why? Because you know what that is? Communion, it is a recalibration. It's recalibrating. It's recentering. It brings us back to the gospel message, the core, the essence of our faith, that God so loved us that Jesus died for us so that we wouldn't perish but that we would have eternal life. One, uh, one pastor I read put it this way. Christians think that we are saved by the gospel, but then we grow by applying Christian principles to our lives. But the way that it works is that we are not just saved by the gospel, but we grow by applying the gospel to every area of our lives. Now that might sound like splitting hairs, but let me explain to you the difference. The first year that I was in Hungary, I, I met this guy named Miklos, right? That's actually my name in Hungarian. When I, when I would order pizza, I'd call myself Miklos. But uh, anyway, uh, this guy's name was Miklos, and he, he came out to our outreaches, and, um, and I shared the gospel with him, and this guy had honestly never heard the gospel in his entire life. I mean, he was like 18 years old, never heard the gospel. His parents were atheists. He, he knew almost nothing about Jesus. And I told him about Jesus, I told him the gospel, I told him how I had come to be a believer. And I told him what Jesus had done in my life, what God had done in my life through the gospel. And you know what he said? He said, I want that. Whatever that is, I want it. I want to believe. I want to be a Christian. I, I want to live for Jesus. So we prayed together, he became a Christian. And, and like many young Christians, this guy was super enthusiastic. And it was really great to see, actually. He started coming to church. He, he was joining our youth group, you know, and he was reading his Bible and learning a lot. And uh, it was all totally new to him. Everything we said was like blowing his mind, you know. Uh, it was really encouraging to see. But then, you know what happened? I, I remember when, when things suddenly changed. A few months after he had become a Christian, Miklos disappeared from church and fellowship. We didn't see him anymore. So I got in touch with him and, and I asked him what was going on. We had a talk and, and here's what happened. That as he had been coming to church, a lot of people, including myself actually, uh, had started telling him what he had to do now that he was a Christian, right? 
They tell them, hey, if you're a Christian, you got to break up with your girlfriend because she's not a Christian. And you can't go out clubbing anymore. And you're not drinking, are you? And hey, what kind of music are you listening to? And hey, why weren't you in church last Sunday? And hey, did you read your Bible enough this week? You know, these kind of things. And you know what he told me? He said, you know, I loved the gospel that you shared with me. It was just all the rules that you have to keep in order to be a Christian that I couldn't handle. He said, I didn't know those rules beforehand. Uh, I, I guess I just didn't know what I was getting myself into. Now, now you might look at that and you might say, and, and people did at the time, and say, well, that's just that guy's problem because he doesn't want to obey God. He doesn't want to do what the Bible says. But over the years, I, I've looked back at this you know, event, this, this person and what happened with him, and, and I've thought about it. And it's, it's always come back to my mind. And, I, and when I think about it, I can't help but think that this was a failure on our part as a church and let me explain to you why because we knew that he needed the gospel in order to be saved right in order to be a Christian we got that part we were good at that but when it came to teach him, teaching him how to grow as a Christian how to be sanctified how to grow in his relationship with God we didn't give him the gospel we gave him the law we gave him a list of stuff to do of do's and don'ts right rather than giving him the gospel now, you might say, well, well, those things that you told him to do, aren't the, are those not good biblical principles? Of course they are. Of course they're good principles. They're based on biblical teachings. Then what was the problem? Then why was it bad what you did? Why do you feel like that was a failure on the part of the church? Let me tell you why. Because we tried to change his behavior through moralism rather than through the Bible, through the gospel. We try to change his behavior through moralism rather than through the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here in verse 3. He says, having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? See, the Galatian Christians, they had become Christians by believing the gospel, but now they were trying to progress as Christians to become closer to God, to be sanctified by their own efforts, by setting up for themselves a new law. A legalistic way. Now if you think back to the story we began with this morning, that Jesus told the story of the two men praying, one thing we learned from that story is this. It's not just what you do that matters to God. It's also why you do it. Motivation is important to God. God looks beyond what we do and he looks to our hearts and he looks at why we do them. Both men prayed, right? That's the what. And praying's good, right? Praying's a good thing. But here's the thing. Why did they pray? The one man prayed to stroke his own ego. Right? The other man prayed with a contrite heart, asking God for mercy. That's a big difference. See, it's not just what you do, it's why you do it that's also important to God. In the same way, we also learn from that story that God isn't simply concerned with people obeying him. He is also concerned about why people obey him, what their motivation is. Because think about this, the guy in our story, what did he do? He was talking about how much he obeyed the law, right? I obey this, I obey that, I do this, I do that. The one guy obeyed God's law, but the reason he obeyed it was not out of love for God, it was so that he could boast about how righteous he was. So it's not just the result that is important to God. He, God also cares very much about the motivation. 
Now, I think, about, I think that what happened to my friend Miklos was actually pretty common in Christianity. We Christians are good at this part about knowing that salvation is by grace, not as a result of works so that no man can boast. But here's where we tend to mess it up. That once they come into the kingdom, then we set up a whole new law for them like we expect them to grow through the law. We know we aren't saved by our works, but then we somehow treat people as if we, they have to grow by the law. Read your Bible every day. Don't smoke. Don't chew. Don't go out with girls who do. You're a Christian now. There are some pretty high expectations. Don't look at that. Don't read that. Don't watch that. Don't eat that. Well, we don't usually say that one, actually, do we? Um, but, uh, you know, what, what's the problem with that? The problem is not with the result, okay? I want you to see that. The problem is not with the result. It's with the motivation. The law motivates people how? Two ways, fear and pride, right? You either play into their pride that you're better than that, you're better than that, you don't want to be one of those people, or we do it through fear. If you don't do this, then you better watch out, right? The law motivates through fear and it motivates with pride. Now, are those good things? No, those are not gospel virtues. But here's the thing, the law, you know what it does? It can change behavior but here's the problem. It doesn't deal with the root of that behavior, which is the heart. The gospel, on the other hand, is not primarily focused on changing your behavior. It is, number one, focused on changing your heart. Jesus said this, out of the heart, out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. He said, for out of the heart comes evil and evil thoughts, murder, adultery, immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. He said, they come from the heart. The root issue is not the behavior. The root issue is the heart. The behavior is just a symptom. If you change the heart, then what happens? The behavior follows. But if you just try to manipulate or suppress behaviors, you haven't actually brought about real change. You haven't actually brought about real growth that lasts. Now look at how the Apostle Paul motivated people to grow in their walk with God. How he motivated them to turn away from sin. How he motivated them to be sanctified. He did it by pointing them to the gospel and applying the gospel to every area of their lives. And that's what I would like you to do today. Apply the gospel. Begin applying it to every area of your lives. Think about this. When, when Paul the Apostle is writing about the importance of giving, right? He's writing to the Christians in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians. He's talking about how important it is as Christians for them to give to the work of God. And you know what he says? He doesn't say, you have to do this because you're a Christian, he doesn't even say, you have to do this because I said so and I'm an apostle and that makes me the boss, so you do what I say. He doesn't do that. You know what he says? He points to the gospel for this. And he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, he became poor for your sake. In other words, he reminds them of the gospel. Why? so that their hearts will be moved and changed by the love of God, so that they will be transformed 
in light of the gospel, by the power of the gospel working on their hearts. In other words, he says this, consider the grace of God to you, the generosity of God to you, until it changes who you are fundamentally, until it changes your heart and takes you from being a stingy person and makes you into a generous person. He works on the heart. Now, now then he writes to married couples, right? And Paul doesn't just tell them, hey, you guys really need to love and respect each other, so just do it, all right? No, he tells them, husbands, look at how Jesus loved you. He loved you sacrificially. He loved you faithfully. He even loved you when you were not lovely. And he loved you in such a way that he makes you lovely. Consider the love that was shown to you on the cross of Calvary until it transforms your heart and you begin to love others the way that he loves you. When Paul speaks to people who struggle with bitterness, what does he say? He doesn't just say, knock it off. He says more than that. He says, consider the gospel. Consider how God in Christ forgave you even though you sinned against him. Even though you hurt him, yet how did he respond to you? He reached out to you. He befriended you when you were not trying to be his friend. He showed you the greatest love in the world by giving his life for you. Consider that and let it change your heart from the inside out. Let it make, take you from a bitter person into a forgiving person who is actually truly able to love those whom you once considered enemies. When he speaks to people who are struggling with habitual sin that they just can't shake, what does he do? He points them to the gospel, right? He tells them that you have died. You're no longer that person you used to be. You have died with Christ and you've been resurrected to new life. So now you have the Holy Spirit in your life and you have the power to walk in that new life. You, have, you do not need to be in bondage anymore to anything. And you know what he says? I love this. And it's in Ephesians chapter 1, 18 and 19, I believe. He says, the same power that God used in resurrecting Christ from the dead, that is the same power of the Holy Spirit that is within you. In other words, he points him to the gospel to say, there is power in the gospel for you to be sanctified, for you to not have to be in bondage to addiction and sin anymore. Now think back to my friend Miklos and, th and think about how different it would have looked if we had given him the gospel instead of giving him the law as a tool to help him grow in his relationship with God. Instead of telling him what to do and what not to do, how different would it have been if we would have helped him to apply the gospel to each and every area of his life? Because I'll tell you what, that guy loved the gospel. He loved it. He was so moved by it that God would love him that much, that God cared for him that much. And, and, and what if I would have helped him grow by thinking through and applying the implications of the gospel to every area of his life rather than giving him laws to follow and trying to suppress and change his behavior? What if I would have helped him to grow in love and appreciation for Jesus so much that it changed his heart, that it fundamentally changed who he was? I'll tell you what, that would have been true and lasting growth. That would have been true and lasting change. So I encourage you that having begun in the spirit, do not try to be perfected in the flesh. In the areas where you struggle, in the areas where you are failing, I encourage you, do this. Apply the gospel 
to every area of your life, that it might change your heart, that it might bring about true growth, that it might change you from the inside out. The gospel isn't just the way that you become a Christian, it's also the way that you grow as a Christian. Second point here, the gospel is not just how you're saved, but it's also the basis for how you serve. Paul says this in verse four, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He says, do you, when God moves among you, does he do that because you've somehow earned it by your own works? No, he says, God does it by his grace. Have you ever thought about how different the two words works and fruit are, right? Fruit and works, they're very different. They both refer to production, right? But they speak of two different kinds of production. Works suggests a factory, right? With, and when you think of a factory, you got pressures, you've got deadlines, you've got a constant need to produce, right? But fruit really suggests a garden, an orchard, really a tranquil place where you're inclined to rest. So when we consider Christian service, it's important to remember that the gospel of God's grace tells us that God isn't just coming to his factory looking for products, but he's coming to his garden to enjoy the fruit. The gospel of God's grace means that we are justified in Christ, right? Since we're justified in Christ, we do not have to do things for God in order to please him because we already have his favor because we are in Christ. And since that's the case, when we serve God, we can leave behind the pressures of factory life, right? The factory life of working for God and we can focus instead on bearing fruit that God desires to see in the garden of your life. If you take a look at the text, you'll notice that, that Paul makes a parallel here between the spirit and faith and between the flesh and works. And the implication is this, that powerful, effective service that is spirit-filled, it's not accomplished by striving in the flesh, trying to produce something by striving in the flesh like a factory worker. It's motivated by a heart that is moved by the love of God and the grace of God that's seen in the gospel. Paul, said, Paul the Apostle says this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says that his motivation for serving the Lord, for serving other people in God's name is that the love of Christ constrains him. He says it, it takes control of his heart. It drives him. And when that's what happens when you get a glimpse of how much God loves you. You can't help but respond to it. You can't help but respond in worship. You can't help but respond in service. Because if Jesus said that whatever we do unto the least of these, we do unto him, then I want to respond to his love. And I want to do, I want to show my love for him by blessing other people, by being his hands and his feet in the world, the way that he can express himself to the world in a tangible way. The old saying goes that if you do something you love, you'll never have to work a day in your life. That is the sentiment that Paul shares about his service to God. If you do something you love, you never work a day in your life, right? Surely Paul worked very hard, right? 
He worked hard, right? He wrote almost half the New Testament. He was producing a lot of material. He traveled the world as a missionary. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was imprisoned. He went from city to city preaching the gospel. But I bet if you would have asked him that he would have told you, you know what? I didn't work a day in my life. That wasn't work. That was a joy. How could I not do that? How could I not want to do that? I, I would do that even if I wasn't paid, you know? And if it was simply the natural outworking of a heart that had been touched and moved by the gospel. So I pray for you that, that whatever service you do in God's name, that it, would, that it would never be a work for you. That it, you would serve the Lord with gladness. That it, would not be done in, in, that it would not be done as a work, but it would just be done as the overflow of God's love in your heart, not in the striving of the flesh. And that it would produce much fruit. And thirdly, the gospel isn't just how you're saved. It is also the basis for how you live. We read this in verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. As the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does these things shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, so it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So Paul now reaches back to the Old Testament to show these guys that the message of the gospel, the message of grace, that no one can come to God on the basis of their own goodness, but only on the basis of God's grace, that God justifies people by faith. He says this is nothing new. This is in fact the very way that Abraham became righteous. Abraham, just like the tax collector in our story, he was justified by faith. He didn't come to God like the Pharisee came to God, presenting his resume, telling God why he was good enough. Abraham was just a simple man. He was a sinner. And he believed the promise of God. And God credited that to him as righteousness. That is justification. He was made righteous. He was justified, not on the basis of his own works, but on the basis of his faith. And that's how we are saved as well. The message of the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ came to save bad people. I hope you know that. And I hope you know today, if you're here today and you say, hey, that's me. I'm a bad person. Most people don't even know how bad I am. You know what I'm here to tell you? Jesus Christ came to save you. You say, I know I'm not good enough. Jesus Christ came to save you. He came to save bad people. And what that means is that when we look at the lives of Abraham and the tax collector, it means that it's possible to be fully loved and fully accepted and at the same time still sinful and imperfect. Martin Luther described it this way. He said, the Christian is simultaneously righteous and sinful. How's that possible? It's possible because the message of the gospel means that God has swapped resumes with you. 
And he scratched out the names and he wrote Jesus' name on your record and he wrote your name on Jesus' record and then he dealt with both of you accordingly. He redeemed you from the curse by becoming the curse himself that you might receive the spirit by faith. And notice what the scripture says. The righteous shall live by faith. You shall live by faith. The gospel isn't just what you believe in order to be saved, but it is the basis for how you live as a Christian. How do you live by faith? Well, look at Abraham. He didn't just believe God one time in order to be credited with righteousness. He lived a life of faith. His life was characterized by two objects, a tent and an altar, and they represent the life of faith that he lived. He walked in step with God. He obeyed God. He lived a life of worship. Now that doesn't mean that he didn't make mistakes. He did, in fact, sin greatly even after that, but the mistakes that he made and the sins he committed did not negate the status that God had bestowed upon him. What does it look like for you to live by faith in light of the gospel? Well, it means that you live with the understanding of who you are in Christ. In Christ, you are fully loved and fully accepted by the Father. So what does that mean? It means that you can be confident as you walk through life. It means that you have security in who you are. In Christ, you are, you are given the promise of eternal life. And what that means is that this life is not the only life you will have. And you know what that means for you practically? It means that you can be brave in this life. You can take risks. You do not have to be a captive to fear because this life is not the only life you will have. It means that in Christ, because you are in him, God is pleased with you. So you can rest from working to earn God's favor and blessings and you can simply make your life a response to God's grace towards you. May that be true of us this week. That our faith would be in the provision of God and not in our own performance. That we would consider the gospel afresh and anew and apply it to every area of our lives. That we might grow by it. That we might serve because of it and that we might live on the basis of it. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Right now what we're going to do is we're going to have the worship team come up and we are going to take communion. And I encourage you as you take communion today and as we worship, respond to the Lord. Respond to the gospel. Remember the gospel and respond to it in worship and service. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you came and died for us. Lord, thank you that you gave us your record, Lord, that we might have your record, or that, that, and you took our record upon yourself. Lord, thank you that in you we have salvation of our souls. Lord, thank you that in you we have redemption. Thank you that in you we are accepted, we are renewed, we are given your spirit, and the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work within us. Thank you, Lord, that you saved us and you are saving us. And we give you all the glory and now we respond to you in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.